Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. They all assume that they want to be buy and hold investors, have this massive portfolio, live off the passive income. Anybody who's been in the game for a while will tell you that's not the smartest way to build wealth. It's not the fastest or most efficient way, especially when you're a value-add investor. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best Ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I am your host, Joe Cornwell, joined by my co-host and other host, Ash Patel, we are going to be doing another conversation with us today about some tactical things that are timeless that anyone listening to this can learn. Obviously, with my residential background, I'm going to be focusing on the residential point of view, and Ash is going to be focusing on the commercial side, and we're going to talk about some of these different topics and how we approach them, and hopefully the audience will gain some perspective from seeing both sides of the equation and how we approach it. So, Ash, how are you doing today? Joe, doing great, man. Great to be back on here with you. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us as well. What do you want to dive into today? Let's start with the tenant screening. This is something near and dear to me with the residential multifamily. We spend a lot of our time doing in-house management. So we manage all of our portfolio, which requires us to do a lot of tenant screening. And I'm going to make the assumption that we probably have a lot more turnover on tenants than the commercial side will. So it's that much more important that you try to find a good quality tenant who's not going to tear up your property, not going to cause a ton of headaches. And what I've learned in the last eight years is that no matter how good a tenant looks on paper, no matter how thoroughly you screen them, no matter how much due diligence you do, there's always going to be that handful of tenants that seeps through the cracks, so to speak, and creates unforeseen issues. And I can give some examples of that. But I guess what I would say is generally speaking, and hopefully all of our listeners already know this. You want to make sure that if you're self-managing or if you have in-house management, that you're doing a few things, background checks, eviction checks, criminal checks, and credit checks. We do all of those on all of our tenant applicants. And there's a lot of things you can do in the residential space to take that next step. I'll give some examples, especially on my student housing. I go through social media. 
or my assistant will, who does a lot of our leasing. We do a little bit of a social media check on people. One example I can give off the top of my head, we had two groups that were both very qualified on paper for one of our student rentals. And one was a, a full male group. One was a full female group to share the house. The male group, when I found all their social media, it was ripping bongs and chugging beers and jumping off of balconies and a lot of the stuff that you don't want to happen in your rental property. So that was an immediate red flag where even though on paper, totally qualified, but if you find their Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, all that stuff, you can really get a better look at what they're actually doing behind the scenes. And that ultimately led us with the other group. So that's just one example of that next level of tenant screening that we do in our company. Yeah, we do social media as well. Our background checks are a little bit different in that I don't think we've ever done criminal background checks. Maybe we have on a few exceptions, but typically our tenants are business owners. So we're verifying financials more than anything. Personal guarantees are only worth the paper they're written on if there's something to go after, right? So here's a good mistake that we've made a few times and hopefully never make again, but we've taken corporate guarantees from people when they have multiple locations, they've got a thriving business and they're on the up and up. We've accepted a corporate guarantee, but we didn't do the right diligence and find out what's under that LLC. And in one case, there was a guy who had seven locations and we thought, great, this great business model. We met with him in person and we had an extensive conversation. We always look at the auditor records, see where they live. We observe what they're driving and make sure that they're truly representative of the success that they're claiming. And in this case, this tenant never made his first rent payment. He got six months of free rent because he signed a 10-year lease. Business just went down. He opened the doors. He was making money out of there. Never paid rent. We had to evict him. And it turns out the LLC only had our location and one other location, which was also doing poorly. So when we tried to go after him, there was nothing. And another mistake that we made on that one is we were a little bit behind in giving him notice when we didn't get rent. So it sets the bar low. They're thinking, oh, this landlord's pretty laid back. If I don't pay rent, I don't get a slap on the wrist even. Now we've got automated software that serves a notice, a late charge, but verifying financials, the corporate guarantee isn't all that it's cracked up to be if there's nothing behind it. Yeah. And your point to late fees, that is a great point. We recently, in the last six months, transitioned to Appfolio for our management system, which has been great because it does all those things you mentioned. It does the self-notifications. All of it's automated. You set the parameters and if they're late, it automatically adds a late fee. It adds a daily late fee. So it sets that precedent for the tenant where if you pay late, it's going to cost you, in some cases, big time and hopefully curbs some of that behavior. Now, what I have learned just on that specific point is that if you make the penalties too extreme, that it actually deters them from paying rent because it's almost a situation where they're like, well, I'm never going to give up. It's hopeless. Why should I give you my last $800 or whatever? Because I'm never going to catch up on the other $400 in late fees I've accrued. So there's a balance there. 
We've had situations where if it was an otherwise good tenant that hadn't ever paid late before, we'll give them one month where we waive their late fees just to keep a good tenant. But obviously, if it becomes habitual, they start paying late, then we, of course, enforce that. And if we have to, we evict them. So I guess the last thing I'll add on the residential side of tenant screening is whenever possible, especially if you're self-managing, try to meet with them, as you mentioned, ahead of time. Get some of that face-to-face. That's going to tell you a lot of red flags. Obviously, from my experience in law enforcement, I was pretty good at that early on when I transitioned into real estate because I was able to pick up on some of those deceptive behaviors or people who just didn't come across as authentic. And another thing is when you meet tenants, especially in residential, and they're driving a beat-up car that's barely running, it's full of garbage, all of those things you can see in real life that you're not going to see behind a computer screen are going to give you additional information. Or maybe they drive an older car, which is fine, but they maintain it very well. And how they take care of their stuff is a good indication of how they're going to take care of your stuff. So I think there's another layer when you're able to get some of that face-to-face interaction that you're not going to get if you have third-party management or if you're doing everything remotely, you're missing an aspect of it. One of the things we get to do is if they're already in business and they're moving to our location or expanding, We'll go visit their existing location. We'll check their online reputation, check their Google reviews. Restaurants, I love because we get to go visit them. We'll walk through their kitchen, make sure they run a clean environment. They don't know we're coming, right? So when we just show up, we're like, hey, can we get a tour? Well, okay. It says a lot. This is going to be your tenant. If it's a mixed-use building, you don't want them attracting rodents and causing problems in the whole building. So Yeah, we'll go visit existing locations, check their online reputations for their business as well. Yeah. One thing I forgot to mention is actually checking references. When I first started, I was really bad about not checking references. And then as I started to scale, it also became harder to stay up with it. If you're only managing a handful of units, it's a lot easier to get really personal, spend the time calling a handful of people to get a reference and following up with them and leaving messages or texts. As you continue to expand, it gets harder to do that when you're leasing five or 10 apartments a month and get in some cases. So what happens is when you stop doing that, you start to have those tenants who look great on paper, but then again, they slip through the cracks. And then once you're actually managing them and dealing with them on a daily basis, you see all those red flags you missed. So I would encourage the listeners, if you are self-managing or even if you have property management, make sure they are actually calling the references, having meaningful conversations with them. And one thing I've learned, and again, this translated in the cop world as well. If you have a three or four people who are willing to say you're a pretty good person and you're honest and you take care of what you're supposed to and you do what you say you're going to do and you pay on time, et cetera, then that is a good sign because we've all heard the stories of I got my cousin to give me a reference or I got my whatever, my sister to act like she was my boss. And if you have four or five people that you're able to trick into doing you a favor, I take that as a sign that at least there's people out there willing to say that they're a decent person. I kind of look at that as a green flag, even if it's not 100% verifiable. Joe, one of the references that you ask for, are they always the current employer and current landlord? Yeah. So our system through Appfolio, I think the way we have it set up is they give their past two or three landlords if they have them. And then they also give employer references as well. So one, you can verify employment. 
Some companies have really strict policies on releasing information, but if it's a small operation or mom and pop type of business, then a lot of times they'll tell you their real authentic opinion of this person. So it gives you another layer of due diligence on them because if they're a crappy employee and they never show up to work and when they're there, they don't do anything. We've had employers tell us this and obviously that's going to give you some insight as to their character. Yeah. The last thing is of course, financials, right? We want to make sure whoever our business tenants are, they have the ability to support their business during a downturn. They've got enough cash to keep their business alive. So we'll look at bank statements, personal financial statements. I would imagine you do the same thing, right? Yeah. We make sure all of our tenants meet the minimum of a three times monthly rent as income, and that's their gross income. So if a tenant doesn't qualify on their own, that all has to be demonstrable. So we don't take bank statements. We don't take cash. You have to be able to actually prove with verifiable sources that you are collecting the income. And if for some reason they don't, then we do allow co-signers in some of our buildings and mainly that's student rentals. It's very common in the student rental space where we're going to have parents or relatives co-sign. And then we do all of the same checks and balances on the parent or the co-signer. So we do the credit check. We do the background check. And I know you mentioned something about the criminal. I used to have a very strict no felony policy. Over time, that's changed a little bit. I now look at what was the circumstances of it and how recent. If somebody had a drug possession 25 years ago, that's probably not going to disqualify them from getting an apartment. But if they had a theft six months ago, a felony theft or that or fraud or something, that's going to obviously be a lot more damning than a long old case of some sort. Hey, since you used to be a cop, does that mean your kids are never going to get away with lying to you? It's going to be harder. <laughs> yeah. I'm relatively good at the interrogation uh, practices, so it's going to be tough anyway. Oh, poor kids. All right. Let's move on to doing build outs. I love this topic because with my construction business and background, we have a lot of control over this process in my properties. And I've talked on other shows and I've had other interviews where I've went in super, super detail on this topic, but high level, I like to build out properties on the residential side that look really nice, but also conform to the neighborhood. So as we've grown, we've had to contour that a little bit because you can't put class A finishes in a class D apartment. So we've had to make some adjustments. But what I'll say is that we try to be a couple things. The best apartment on the block or in the neighborhood at that price band, that way we can have access to the best tenant. So not necessarily more rent, Sometimes you get more rent, but that's not necessarily the motivation, but we want access to the best tenants in that neighborhood. But we also try to do our build outs and turnovers in a way where they're highly durable. So we opt for better flooring. We opt for better paint. We opt for real wood trim. We put granite in all of our stuff, even our class D and class C stuff because of the durability. So when I look at the cost versus benefit ratio, on spending a little bit more on material that in most cases makes me choose for the more durable or the better looking options. And what I've also learned being in the construction business is most of your cost is going to be on the labor side. And why that's important is because if you cheap out on materials, which I've seen a lot of investors do, you end up paying for it in the labor cost because I'll give a prime example. A lot of investors used to buy those really cheap $15 Walmart faucets 
that were all plastic. It's like, oh yeah, I got this sink faucet or shower faucet for 15 bucks. Well, yeah, but in six months when that valve inside breaks because it's plastic or the gaskets wear out because of plastic, you're going to have to send a plumber or a contractor back out there and spend $300 on labor to put in another one or a decent one. So I give that example because it really shows how you think you're saving money on paper, but in reality, you're going to end up paying for it. So we try to do all of our units in a way that are appealing, will get us the highest market rent, the best tenant, but also be as indestructible as possible. Do you guys ever use carpet or is it all LVP? Never. I don't do any carpet in any of our apartments at all. We have office buildings that we have to have carpet in for a number of reasons, sound absorption and just better feel, but we'll end up using carpet squares, which are great because if one's worn out or stained, literally peel it out, stick the next one on, done. Build outs for us are a huge range. So we'll often give tenants our space as is, and it's shocking to this day how much time and money they'll put into it, transforming it into an incredible salon or boutique store or even a restaurant. And in our leases, we'll write down that if they leave, everything that's attached stays behind. So imagine a restaurateur, obviously we'll pay for the hood, but all the equipment that they put in will stay behind if they ever leave. So that's a benefit. On the flip side, we will have national tenants that come in and they will demand a certain level of finish on the floor, the drywall, all new HVAC, all new lighting, all new fire suppression. And those bills could be hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they have staying power. So if a mom and pop tenant comes in, we don't know that they're going to survive. So we're skeptical on putting a lot of money into that space. If a national tenant comes in and signs a 10-year lease, we'll spend whatever it takes to get that lease lined up. The example is for every $1,000 in NOI, and that could be rent increase or expense reduction, it equates to $150,000 upon sale. So $1,000 a month is $12,000 a year. Divided that by 0.08 or an eight cap, you end up with $150,000 a year. So if we can give tenants money to increase their rent, we'll do that all day long. really want to get into mindset. I've been reiterating this phrase that Joe mentioned. Were you there when him and I talked about our biggest mistakes? One of the things that just keeps resonating with me was a Tony Robbins quote that he requoted. And he said, 20% of his success is mechanics. 80% is mindset. And I didn't think a whole lot of it when he said it. But later on, amongst my mastermind group, I asked them if they agreed with that, and all of them immediately just started nodding yes. It could be upward of 90% is mindset, 20% mechanics. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. And I know you and I have had this discussion, and I recall when we did talk about it. For me, the mechanics are the baseline of experience. Because when I look back at my journey, those first couple years when I was just learning about real estate, I didn't even know what type of real estate I wanted to get into. I was reading all the books. I was listening to all the podcasts, starting to go to networking events. For me, at that point, it was all mechanics. Because the way my brain works is if I don't understand something, I have fear around the issue. 
It's like uh, we're both parents. Before you have your first baby, you're terrified because you just don't know what you don't know. And once you start having kids, you kind of realize, like, okay, this is actually not as bad as everyone made me think it was and not as difficult. And I think real estate's the same way because the mechanical is like the foundation. What type of houses? What type of real estate? What type of properties? How do I find them? How do I fix them up? How do I find tenants? All of that stuff is not difficult. But when you start from scratch, it seems overwhelming. But the point is, once you have that foundation and you understand fundamental basics of real estate, then it becomes mindset. Because I think a lot of people struggle with the limiting beliefs that they're not good enough or they don't deserve this. These are things I deal with still to this day. Some days I wake up and I'm like, what did I do to deserve this? Or I don't deserve this. Or you dwell on mistakes in your past. And all of those things are negative mindsets that can really hurt progress. They can hurt your confidence. And this is a little off topics, but it's like the older I get, the more I realize I don't know. When I was in my mid twenties, I felt like I knew everything. You think you got life figured out, but I feel like the older I get, the more I learn, which makes me realize I don't know nearly everything I thought I once did. But the point is that can hurt your confidence. So it goes back to that mindset, having negative mindsets. And I think that's like working out something you have to always stay consistent with. That's my view on mindset. I agree a hundred percent. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. A 1031 exchange is one of the greatest tools to build your real estate portfolio. But before you sell your next investment property, if you want to save thousands in capital gains taxes, please give our friends at 1031 Pros a call. Whether you're an individual investor, title company, or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help you or your clients with their 1031 exchange needs. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros specializes in various types of exchanges like delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states, all while ensuring your transaction is fast, reliable, transparent, and secure. 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges, and right now, best ever listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com slash best ever. That's my1031pros.com slash best ever to get $250 off today. Have you heard that Mint, the popular personal finance app, is shutting down? If you use Mint, that's bad news. The good news is that there's an even better alternative, Monarch Money. Monarch gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with others. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash best ever. Most personal finance apps are clunky and cluttered with ads. Monarch is different. Its intuitive design makes setup, customization, and everyday use simple and easy. Monarch is also the most customizable budgeting app available. You can change your dashboard layout, create custom budgets and notifications, and even invite your partner, accountant, or financial advisor to have a joint view of your finances at no extra cost. Once you try Monarch for yourself, you'll understand why it was named 2024's best budgeting app by the Wall Street Journal. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash best ever. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash best ever for your extended 30-day free trial. I used to say that I've got imposter syndrome because for a lot of reasons. And I heard Tony Robbins talk where he was helping somebody else out. And the guy said the same thing. And he said, that's all BS. Imposter syndrome is just low self-worth. And I was like, damn. 
all right, <laughs> got to fix that. So we had this mastermind retreat in Austin a couple of weeks ago. And at one point I told everyone, I want us all to gather and talk about what you're most proud of in the last year and your biggest struggle. And that was amazing because nowhere do we ever think of what we're proud of and pat ourselves on the back because we're always inundated or focused on the next goal. So people struggled with that one, but there were great answers. And I think it's important that we take time to reflect on what it is that we accomplished. Where do we come from? Where are we today? And spend some real time thinking about that and not just this never ending to-do list, but then the struggle, everyone shared their struggles. And it was amazing that when you have a group of about 15, 20 people, how much great advice you got and other people who have been there. And it's similar to Joe. I'm sure if you spoke with somebody who is just starting out in real estate, you can give them the most basic advice, but to them it's mind blowing. So for that reason, I wanted everybody to make sure that they had an accountability partner. So let's transition this conversation into two things. One, you in terms of mentors and accountability partners, and I'll share my story as well. I'm really good at deflecting. So I'd probably be a great accountability partner because I can hold other people accountable. But when it comes to me, I would just be like, back to you. What's going on with you? I'm going to fix this and you're doing great here. And I've got an accountability partner now that sees through that. And it's one of the probably two or three people in my life that I've encountered who can see through my BS and my diversion techniques. And that's been really helpful. So having a mentor and having an accountability partner, and I'm 48 years old, and I'm just now figuring this stuff out, but I think that's important for everybody. And I've seen in our group what that's done for other people. So your thoughts, and do you have anybody for accountability and a mentor? Yes. I don't necessarily have what I would consider a direct mentor, meaning my go-to that I always call when I have questions. For me, mentorship comes in the way of having a network of people that I meet with and I visit. Obviously, you're one of those people. And that allows me to get around people who are steps ahead of me on my journey. And it obviously allows me, like you just said, to learn, get good advice, talk about some of my issues that they've been through. So I think my mentorship, I would say, is surrounding myself with like-minded people who some may be behind me, some might be ahead of me on their journey, but all of those things help pull me along. So that's more of my mentorship than a direct and one person where this is my go-to. I'm going to call this guy every time I run into a problem. But as far as accountability, probably my best accountability is I run my own mastermind group. We meet via Zoom once a month. And what really holds me accountable, because just like you said, I feel like I'm very good at giving advice and giving people good feedback on their goals and their tactics to get to those goals. But I struggle with myself and holding myself accountable. And I think we all do. But when I give advice and we have these conversations with my mastermind group and we talk about all these things we're working on as a group, I know I can't go back and face them in a month and tell them, I told you to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, <laughs> and then show up. And I didn't do all the things that I said I was going to do. So it forces me to be accountable to the group because I don't want to be a fraud. I don't want to go out there and not practice what I preach. 
if that makes sense. So I've been doing that for about uh, almost two years now. That has really helped me hold myself accountable because I got to go face the music every month. And I just simply won't allow myself to be inauthentic, I guess. I try really hard not to be. I love that, but you need a mentor. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. There's a lot of little things that we do where we can use help on, but we got to share what we're struggling with. Things like getting an assistant or offloading tasks or being more efficient or just changing your outlook on certain things. Somebody who's been through all of that could really help someone who's just now going through it. So I want to see you get a mentor. Yeah, I agree with you. I do. I struggle with that. I struggle with asking people for help. I never want to be the person who's bothering people. So I struggle with that. I struggle with reaching out and asking for help from people. Yeah, we should revisit that because you'd be amazed at what a mentor can do to help you. All right. What are you seeing in the market these days? I think it's a lot of the same with the way the economy has been moving the last eight weeks of the new year. I don't see any rate drops in our future. I know a lot of people were predicting that to happen sooner than later. The economy's still going strong on paper, and I think that's going to make the Fed hold in place and see what happens. Another thing I was recently reading about was how with election years, obviously 2024, we're in an election year. A lot of times the Fed wants to play center of the aisle, meaning that they're not going to try to sway the economy one way or the other with their tools that they have, which mainly is interest rates. So Based on what I'm seeing as far as the market, I don't think we're going to have a whole lot of movement on rates, at least not in the near future. And I think that's going to cause the housing market and the investment real estate market to be a lot more of the same, meaning low inventory, relatively low seller motivation, relatively low buyer motivation in the sense of there's not a lot of good deals out there. So that's taking a big chunk of buyers out of the market when you look at 7 8% interest rates. Obviously, I know they dipped into the sixes for a little bit, but they're pretty steady right now. So yeah, unfortunately, I think it's going to be similar to the last year. I remember last couple of recessions, walking into a Home Depot or Lowe's and having multiple associates ask if there's anything they can do to help you. And it's like, you know, they're suffering if they've been told upsell or try to help people, which during the last several years just doesn't happen, right? You can't get an associate because they're slammed housing market's booming, everything's booming. Brokers are the same way. So now if you reach out to a broker, you'll be amazed at how much of their time and attention you get. So best ever listeners, take advantage of that. We use Crexy or LoopNet. If we click on anybody's ad, we get a phone call right away. Hey, I saw you looked at this ad. What can I tell you about it? And then just have that conversation with them and see what else that they have that they're selling. So brokers are a lot more accessible I'm starting to see a lot of boomers selling properties or selling assets or selling businesses because they're just getting older. They want to get out. And in terms of inventory, we're starting to see some good deals out there. They're still few and far between, but I think it's opening up more. In our world, most of our rates are five years fixed at most. So if they locked in 2020, 21, 22, In the next couple of years, all of those are resetting to much higher interest rates. So that can be a cause for people to start selling as well. I heard a really interesting theory, went down to visit a friend of mine. He had been with CBRE 30 years, just 
been retired for many years, but studies the market every day. And his theory is we're going to have a double top. What that means is as soon as the election's done, everyone will breathe a sigh of relief because they know the outcome, right? Whatever it may be. And money will come back off the sidelines into different markets. And then things will pop up. And then you have the fall because there's no evidence of a soft landing anywhere in history. We've had the longest bull run ever. I can't believe that we're not going to have a hard landing. There's got to be pain that follows the longest prosperity in history. So his theory is one that I buy into is things will settle down after the election. Money will come back into markets and things will get exuberant and then it'll pop, right? Because it's always exuberance that comes preemptively before the pop, the dot-com bubble, the real estate bubble in 2008. It's just FOMO, exuberance, and then it just catches everyone off guard. But if you look historically at the recessions, outside of a couple of the major recessions, obviously 08 being the biggest one, most recessions are relatively mild. You might have two, four, six, at the most eight quarters of negative growth, and then the economy rebounds, right? So we already had back-to-back quarters of negative GDP growth. So that's technically a recession. But it rebounded relatively quickly. So it was very, very minor, small, if you want to call it technical recession. Now, the biggest factor I think that's causing the quote unquote recession that we're in or what people are considering a recession is just negative consumer sentiment. I think a lot of people are afraid of the economy going down. And it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think the economy is going to get worse, People are sitting on money and trying to save. If people think the economy is going up, people want to spend money. And as you mentioned, they have FOMO. They want to invest. They want to put their money to work. They want to buy. They want to do all those things. They want to upgrade houses. And all of those things churn the economy. But a lot of it is just the sentiment of the economy. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes throughout this year and especially during the election cycle. But me personally, my opinion based on what I've seen and what I think is going to happen is just... A lot more stagnation as far as the real estate market. I don't think a ton of people are going to buy or sell unless, again, they have to. As you mentioned, there are some sellers out there that have to sell or are motivated for various reasons, but I don't think it's going to be a meaningful number that's going to really sway the inventory shortage. I've talked to a lot of COSEG people in the last few months, bankers, and all of them really believe that the 100% bonus depreciation is going to be reinstated. So that could be another good catalyst for real estate. I certainly hope so. And that would help me a lot. And I think it would help juice the market a lot because it's going to create more of that upside on transactional volume. And you and I have obviously talked about this off the air, but this is the first time in my eight years where I've actually considered selling a couple of my properties. And I don't want to get into a whole nother discussion on it, but The short reason for that is because I'm at a point where when I have to refinance and the rates go up, my cash flow on the new debt is going to be small enough where the equity I'm sitting on is much more valuable. And for the last eight years, that's always been flipped. And that's why I was a burn, never sell investor. That was always my philosophy. Well, now the math is just, 
I think I told you I have one property where it's like 129 months of cash flow to replace my equity. So almost 11 years. It would take 11 years of today's cash flow to get my equity that I have today. So in that case, it makes much more sense with such a low return on equity, whatever it is, like four or 5% to cash out that equity with a sale and then hopefully 1031 it into a bigger deal. And that's the strategy I'm looking at with a couple of properties. That's the biggest mindset evolution for most real estate investors when they're starting out. They all assume that they want to be buy and hold investors, have this massive portfolio, live off the passive income. Anybody who's been in the game for a while will tell you that's not the smartest way to build wealth. It's not the fastest or most efficient way, especially when you're a value-add investor. You make all your money when you buy these great properties at low prices and then add the value. So if you do the math, you're way better off turning and burning. That idle equity not doing anything for you makes you feel good. You could tell them you've got X thousands of doors, but in terms of building wealth, turning and burning, you have all this equity sitting there. People have passive income goals. And I'll tell you, once you exceed a certain number in net worth, it doesn't matter what your passive income is. If you've got $10 million in net worth, you can care less how much passive income you have. That makes sense. And we've obviously had this debate or conversation, however you want to phrase it, a couple of times in the past. And in today's market, I agree with you 100%. When you're looking at new debt at 6 7 8%, in most cases, if you're sitting on a lot of equity, it's probably a no-brainer because if you can trade up and 5X your equity, go out, if you can get a 25% down loan and 5X your equity into hopefully a four or five times bigger deal, your potential cash flow on that, assuming it's a relatively good deal, is going to be much bigger than what you're sitting on today. But a couple of years ago, when you could go out and refi for 3% and take 80% of your equity out of a deal... And take that into another deal. I think there was a good argument for holding and continuing to recycle your gains through the equity into a new deal. But that's no longer the market we're in. Yeah. Well, awesome, Joe. What a good conversation today. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Looking forward to keeping at it. By the way, you're going to the best ever conference, aren't you? Yes, definitely. What is it? April 9th through 12th in Salt Lake this year. Yeah. The best networking of any conference I've ever been to. Look forward to seeing you out there. Best ever listeners, again, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.